Welcome back. This is part two of the conversation with David Carson. As you could tell, David's passionate about taking photos. You heard that in part one. If you haven't, go back and listen to it. If you have, maybe you want to listen to it again. In this part of the conversation, David talks about winning the Pulitzer Prize and what that meant to the staff of the Post. He also talks about the decision that he made to go into the quick trip while it was being looted, right before it was engulfed in flames. Great story. Some great tidbits in there, a little more than you had last time to finish this up. Amazing guy, passionate guy about photography. And I'm also happy to say and happy to thank those who have sponsored this show and are passionate about what I'm doing and who have been very supportive. These people are really passionate about what they do. Dr. Mark Holland cares about his patients. He wants to help his patients. He wants to alleviate back pain, getting the spine healthy again getting those vertebrae in order. Great guy, First Capital Chiropractic. You can find them at uh, www.chironrehab.com. Four locations in the St. Louis area. He'll be there to help you, and I think you'll love talking to him. Dr. Mark Holland's a great guy, great friend, big supporter of the show. Kevin Blumenkamp. Kevin's been a great friend as well. He is a, a master artisan when it comes to working with metal crafting fine jewelry, one-of-a-kind pieces. Kevin is absolutely amazing. Check him out. Uh, you can reach him on Facebook. You can you can give him a call, 314-346-6498. If you go to my YouTube channel, Ken Calcaterra, also there's a link in the um, show description. You can find uh, the animation that I put together for him a few years back and uh, see some of his jewelry that uh, has moving parts animated really cool stuff also want to thank bob gilmore bob gilmore is a master electrician does great work whether it be industrial whether it be residential no job is too big or small for bob he handles all the electrical work that i need he's uh, one of the few people that i trust so in the st louis illinois area so in missouri the st louis area illinois bob will travel if uh if the job is right Give him a call at 314-565-5894. And last but not least, uh, Mike Aubuchon at Premier Insurance Agency. Mike wants to help you get the best rates. He wants to help you handle any of your insurance needs. If you have a problem, you can reach him almost uh, most hours of the day. He's he's there for you more than, more than the insurance companies will be directly. You can reach him at 314-729-0054. He serves both Missouri and Illinois. You can also reach him at Mike A at 
premierinsagency.com. I, I can't thank these guys enough for helping with this show, helping me cover some of the cost and uh, put this out to you. And if you like the show, if you like this second part that you're you're going to hear with David Carson, if you like some of the other shows, whether, whether it be artist Stephen Walden, who was uh, an episode ago, if you go back to Ben Wilson, uh, great musician in Nashville, John Vlasic, healer, I'm happy to bring these these great people to introduce you to them, and I want to introduce them to more people. They're just amazing. I'm happy to have them in my life, to know them. Check the show out. Pass it along. Share it on Facebook. Give me a rating. Give the show a rating on iTunes. That would be very helpful into getting it out and, and growing the show. I You can't do this alone. In this day and age, there's a lot of media. I'm working hard to bring you a quality show and want to continue to do so. In a couple episodes, we have legendary percussionist and music producer out of Nashville, Pino Squilace, great Italian friend. We've got Ben Sturgill. Ben Sturgill, great album, Music Box. You're going to hear a lot of songs from that. Ben's coming up uh, in February. And then uh, next episode that we have coming out, we have a panel with uh, Stephen Walden, Jeff Ritter, Matt Sims. We're, We're having a little panel on Star Wars talking about that. So Join us. Here we are once again, David Carson, Conversations with Calcaterra. Going back now that uh, you talked about it, so the Pulitzer Prize, when, when you were talking in the class January of 2015, we were, we were going over some different photos. I think, was it Georgia that was happening at the time, or there was something internationally that uh, a big event, and there was just some incredible photos with that event as well. And you were kind of thinking, yeah, that's that's the one that'll probably get the Pulitzer Prize this year. And then, then I I, I hear one day I see a post on Facebook, hey, we won uh, the Pulitzer Prize for our our Ferguson photos. How did you feel about that when when you received that call or that news? You know, that was that was a pretty cool day. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. I I always want to say this is that. It, what tempers me in my excitement about about winning this major award is is that you know all these events which led to this award started with the death of an 18-year-old kid these events have been so traumatic for this community that i live in um if i have pride in what we did and what we accomplished at the post dispatch is it's pride that we told this story better than anyone else told this story um you know the inter- the international media came to St. Louis to tell the story of Ferguson, but it was the local. It was a it was a group of local photojournalists who 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 knew the community and knew the people here who were best able to tell this story. And you know, I think there was some other great work done out there in Ferguson by some other really talented photojournalists. But I'm so proud of the work that our staff did and came together and produced that you know I I, I just. That made me really happy. It was it was really neat. There was the um, there was the Ukraine. I thought we thought was going to probably beat us. Okay, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, it, it was the Ukraine, and we were concerned about Ebola. Uh, there was some wonderful coverage. Ebola won in feature photography. Um, we talked to the New York Times. Uh, when we went to the Pulitzer luncheon. We talked to the uh, New York Times about you know their entry, and like we we're like, yeah, we were really worried that you guys were going to stick Ebola and and uh, breaking news and we like that wasn't going to go well for us and they said yeah you know we moved Ebola Ebola was in breaking news and then we moved it over, out into feature um, because we entered the Ukraine which they were finalists for and 
Oh, they had another. The two finalists behind us were both New York Times entries. Um, so I can't remember what the second finalist was for that. But, um, you know, it's really, it's something I will always remember being in the newsroom when they came down and they announced the Post-Dispatch, you know, won the Pulitzer Prize for the for breaking news photography. We, we were all gathered in the newsroom. There was probably, I don't know, 70, 70, 80 people gathered around a television. We're watching a live broadcast of this. And Robert Cohen and I, another one of the staff photographers, and Lyndon Steele, my boss, we'd all gone out to lunch before this. You know, we're, we're, we were feeling some anxiety. Like, we knew it was a possibility. Um, but as we're coming back in from lunch, uh, Robert says to me, he goes, why do I feel like we're walking to the gallows? I'm like, I know, dude, like, there's no way in the world we're going to win this. And we're going to sit up there. We're going to watch this in front of our coworkers. And we're going to lose. And this is going to be awful. And, you know, I, it was funny because as they're reading it, breaking news photography is the second to last newspaper category that they read off. And I thought that maybe we stood at, that we stood a really good chance in possibly for, uh, for just reporting and breaking news reporting in general, of which we were a part of. Um, and possibly for editorial writing was another one. And so when they got down, um, excuse me, um, they read off that the Seattle Times won for uh, breaking news uh, reporting for the landslide that happened out there. Um, and I can't remember who won for the, someone won for editorial writing that wasn't us. Uh, and I'm like, oh man, we screwed it up. We're, we're not going to get it. And I, and like I, I had, I just had this sinking feeling. And then they said, you know, in you know the Pulitzer Prize for you know the 2015 uh, Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography goes to the staff of the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And it was like, oh, it was this emo- It was just this huge emotional release, you know, re- relief. You know, it's just like, oh, and everyone cheered and. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a neat day to be in the newsroom. Uh, it was really, it was really, it was real special. You know, I think uh, anyone that was there will remember that. So. That's cool. And, and one thing at the panel recently that someone had mentioned was, yeah, it's great to get that prize. We we don't really don't get any money. It's very nominal, but it's something that allows us to continue to do good work. Because in this day and age, we're looking at the change of newspapers. We're looking at Everybody wants something for less. So it's it's cutting staffs. It's, oh, hey, uh, so-and-so has an iPhone. Uh, the community has an iPhone. We'll just post those photos, which I think you don't get that integrity. You you don't get that fair and balanced. You, uh, you've used the term represent the truth as accurately as you can. Uh, I don't think with, with somebody that, that isn't trained or hasn't done it or doesn't have that experience or that temperament, that that you can really represent the truth as as accurately as you can because once again the emotion comes into play not that you or the staff are not emotional uh talk a little bit about how that prize you know just expand upon that so so what you're seeing across the country is is the elimination of staff photo departments at newspapers the chicago sun times there's a paper in um, South Carolina that eliminated it. Uh, the New York Daily News just bought off a, a, a lot of their uh, uh, their staff members. And the problem with this is is that you know you can't replace 
what a trained professional photojournalist can do with an iPhone. And if you try to outsource it to the community, what you get is a bunch of people who are have a, you know, who aren't trained in being ethical and being fair. And, you know, I may get beat, you know, to someone standing at the scene and just being, you know, making a pure picture at a scene that I haven't arrived to yet. But at a long extended scene like that, you know, the value of having a professionally trained photo staff like we have at the Post-Dispatch really showed itself. Our ability to come together as a team and cover, you know, provide coverage to all aspects and, and plan and to overcome the technical challenges. So many of these things happen in the pitch dark of night where your iPhone is not going to make a picture. But, you know, a photojournalist working with a real camera, you know, um, we use 1DXs. Uh, that have this fantastic ISO performance and, you know, have been in stressful situations before and know how to make stressful, you know, make pictures under that situation and then have the ability to get it back on deadline, you know, so, so that it's fresh and current, you know, that, you know, you can't, you, you can't get that from the public. Um, it, it's been, it's been interesting, you know, with some of the, you talked about the unrest at, at Mizzou and, there was an interesting thing there where people were like, well, we don't need the media. We can document this ourselves. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, that would be like allowing, you know, the president of the United States to just document, you know, to document his travels, you know, and write his own EP reports about what his day was. You know, I think history benefits from having an outside individual observe and report. Um, people will be like, you're biased and you're, you know, you're not, you're not going to show us fairly. And well, you know, there are some people out there that are going to twist the facts and do stuff. But I think, you, you know, there are a lot of ethical journalists who can be trusted to tell the truth as accurately as possible. And I, I don't think that what people put out on social media is without value. I think there is value in there. But I think that the context given to what they produced by what a, an independent journalist produces to either confirm or 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 uh, argue against it or just provide a little subtlety to, to more round to more round out the information is, is important. So, yeah, you know, I, you know, I'm a staff photojournalist at a newspaper. You know, we're it's kind of a dying breed, but I, I think one of the things that we showed in Ferguson was is that having staff photojournalists, professional visual journalists really benefits the value you can bring to your readers and your subscribers. And that's some, that's something a big paper should be able to provide them is, is professional visual representation of the events in their community. And I think it's very important, especially with investigative journalism and with everything that you did, the whole series and covering it throughout that time does paint the whole picture, paints both sides and I, I think often a lot of the media that we're seeing, and I think people are starting to associate the media with, with a lot of the emotion and the, the opinion type things. A lot of television personalities are, are that, personalities. And they're interesting people, but it's a lot of opinion. And I'm going to throw this out and I'm going to get do whatever it takes to get the biggest cheer. And, and it's just, yeah, I just think it's, it, it's not good. It, it's, no. yeah. It's just I really, have conversations with my own parents about that. My parents love some of the stuff on Fox News and I'm just like oh like just think about what think about the media you're, you're digesting you know like I, I listen I, I will drive along and I will listen to within the course of an hour I will listen to some Rush Limbaugh I'll do as well I'll, and, I'll and, and I'll listen to well. some NPR and yeah. what I find on um, that happens on both NPR and Rush Limbaugh is that someone will get on there and say something so stupid I have to turn the channel <laughs> but I 
I will at least listen to what the arguments are that are being made. And, and so I have a fully informed idea of what's going on. And some what's what concerns me is is that sometimes people only get their stuff from one source. They they take what Rush Limbaugh says as being news and in, in journalism and it yeah, he's really he's more op- opinion and in an entertainment than news and in facts. Um so and I think Fox News is sometimes a bit grayer like that. And, you know, the same thing can be said for MSNBC. There's people who really dislike some of the things exactly. that they do. Yes. So there, there's on both both spectrums yes. there. Um, you know, one of the things I found fascinating was in Ferguson was I, I'd, I'd be driving home and I was listening to the BBC report on, on the local NPR channel on the way home. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. It was some ridiculous time. And, and they're saying like, National Guard troops are out in the streets of Missouri in Ferguson. I'm like, yeah, not really. I mean, the National Guard troops were were, were brought in to, uh, at, at this point had been brought in to protect the the shopping center that police were using as a staging area. So, were they on the streets? When you say they're on the streets and patrolling, it, it makes it sound like you know they're out in the neighborhoods driving around in Humvees. Now that happened later. That happened later on. But in in uh, in August, they weren't patrolling the streets. And so, like, I was listening to that. I'm like, well, that's wrong. Um, and I uh, I talked to the BBC radio one night, and they asked me, they said, you know, they, they wanted me to speculate about race relations in, in St. Louis. And I was like, oh, I, I can't. I, I'm not going to go there. You know, it's like, you know, you know, the, yeah, I think, you know, that there's that, – Clearly, there's some there's some issues here, but you're asking a white forty year old male like, what's the state of race relations in Missouri? I don't feel fully qualified to answer that question. I don't know who would be fully qualified to answer that question. But um, they were looking. I think that what they were trying to do is to draw me out to be like, oh, things are awful or things are great. There's no problem. They were looking for someone to express an opinion. I'm always. I try to be careful not to give opinions. I try to base what off off of things I've seen and experienced and not slant it. So that's great. Yeah, that's what we need. And and I think that's when we talk about professional photojournalists when we look at the AP ethics guidelines, uh, you know, there's a basis there. Don't go in and uh, you had said uh, I won't do anything in Photoshop that I can't do in a dark room. Right. Granted, you can, you know, one can manipulate things in a dark room as well. We've seen that in history, but but for the most part, a little cropping, uh, some contrast, maybe a little little lighting type things. Right. But it's a little burning and dodging. And yeah, stuff, exactly. So, right. so really basic techniques, but it's it's one of those things. I don't think a lot of people really know what those rules are and with Instagram and everything you can go in and and make really cool pictures but that's not something that is uh that would be considered news so so one of the things that has frustrated me frustrated me about Photoshop and Instagram people like people don't believe your photos now you know if you show them something they're like oh that's Photoshop and like no 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 that that really happened that that's what it looked like you know and so that um you know, Photoshop is great because it enables me to work very quickly and do stuff. But then Photoshop's so accessible by the masses that everyone thinks they now know how to do Photoshop and they just make assumptions that I'm Photoshopping stuff sometimes. And I'm like, no, that, that gets me fired. In fact, <laughs> um, at the Post-Dispatch, we save all of our raw files. Everything we shoot, we save. So if anyone ever came to me and challenged me on a photograph, I'd be like, 
I could be like, show it to my boss and be like, listen, here, here's the photos from this night. Um, feel, feel free to review them. And, and he would see that, you know, beyond setting a white point and a black point, uh, doing some contrast adjustments and, uh, some burning and dodging or lightening and darkening, you know, I, I didn't clone anything out. I didn't, I didn't add anything in. I didn't delete information from the picture. Like what, what I'm showing you should be a fair and accurate representation of what I, what I saw and out there on the scene. Yeah, we don't see too many cases. There was, I think it was a New York Times guy. There was an Afghanistan photo where I think, was, was he painted out a journalist that was in the background? It was, I don't remember. I should have, the, I, the, tried, the, I tried to find it again. The, there was a guy, not. Brian Woski from the LA Times, uh, who got caught uh, on the in the invasion into Iraq in 2003, um, combining two photographs into one. Um, there was... There's a gentleman out of out of Toledo, I think the Toledo Blade that got caught doing a lot of manipulations, um, but just like stupid stuff, like like removing a cord, like photoshopping out a cord from a picture. Like I'm okay with imperfections in my picture if it's reality. He was letting imperfections like cords like bother him to the point where he was deleting them, you know, deleting them out. Um, and once you do that, even a little cord, like, hey, that's not a right, big deal. But you right. right there, your integrity, your your reputation. It's you're going down a slippery you, slope. Once, yeah, right. something it's that a, easy or right. that simple. Right. So yeah. yeah, and and the other challenge is to get just real pictures. People always want to stage stuff for you. I'm like, don't stage it. I'm like, I don't. If you're gonna stage it. I'm gonna leave. You know. But just be yourself, and be like whatever happens is gonna happen. Um, so. Some of that comes from reality TV. Like people watch reality TV, they think it's reality. I hate reality TV because <laughs> it's so staged to me. Like just, it's awful. So yeah, there's a lot of it that is, and I, I'm I'm putting a few shows together myself that I want to be more documentary. Right. Where it where it is. It, I or, watch or, documentary TV. I won't watch reality TV. <laughs> there's some shows I admit it's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. There's some interesting things, but but I think you we, we talked about awareness. You have to go into it knowing what what it is and not and knowing that if if you're watching Rush Limbaugh or listening to Rush Limbaugh that that's entertainment you may get some some bits and pieces in there that hopefully you'll have the time to go investigate i i listen to uh the young turks on youtube and that's more definitely more left leaning but i think they're they're a little more balanced than others but then once again i'll go to other sources listen to the bbc and and try to look at some different sources but in this day and age it's there's so much out there who mm. has the time um but looking at we'll cover a few more things here you know one of the things when you were saying we have this local presence and you guys told the story i mean really well it was dynamite one of the things that i had asked you at one point is when do you decide not to take a picture or not to publish something and you had mentioned there was a there was a moment when Leslie McFadden was crying on the steps and you decided not to, not to capture that pic or was it capturing or was it publishing? Yeah, I was, I was capturing. I, um, yeah, she, she'd come out and she'd drop some uh, rose petals on, on the ground, uh, at the site. This, this is the road is still wet from the fire hoses being used to wash the blood off the street. And Leslie McFadden, Leslie McFadden, um, Michael Brown's mother had come over to the scene and was dropping some rose petals on the site. And she went over and she just kind of, just this guttural wail. And there's there were people around her. I was concerned, like, 
it's interesting if I if I had known now if I if I knew then what I knew now that this was going to become this major story that might have changed my idea of whether or not I was going to try to push to make that picture at that time I was like I need to give this late my, my feeling was I need to give this woman some space to just kind of be I don't I don't need to photograph this um, and also you know I, the crowd was you know I I was I was concerned about how the crowd was going to interact with me if I tried to make that picture um, so. <laughs> You know, I didn't want to, I, I didn't, I didn't want to violate her, you know, obviously if she's on a public street, you can photograph anyone on a public street. Sometimes something's going on and you just, you kind of need to give someone a, a little bit of space and you have to feel for that. Um, it, it's such a hard decision. At, at that time, I didn't make that picture. You know, there was another staff photographer out, out there from the Post-Dispatch, Weemock, with me at the same time. He didn't make that picture. We were sitting on the, we were sitting up in the photo department one day. And we were talking about that. I was like, he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm okay with us not making that picture. And I said, yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I would be interested to know if I had known it was going to get so big. I wonder what my decision w- w- would have been there and stuff. If that would have changed my decision not to make that picture, but um, at, at the time, it just felt right to give her, give her the space there. Um, so I, you make all sorts of decisions every day when you're out there and doing stuff and you just, you just live with them. So the picture doesn't exist. I, I can remember, I can remember it. Um, I remember the, the sound of it, but yeah. Interesting. When did you decide to, uh, get into the field of photojournalism? What, what, what spurred you to do this? What, what inspired you? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I, um, it was, uh, when I first picked up my, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, so I got my first camera from the, I'm, I'm okay. So I got into photojournalism. How did I get into photojournalism? It's such a complicated question because I have this interesting backstory to photography. I'm named after my father's best friend who was killed in Vietnam. The mother of the, of my dad's best friend, who uh, who died in Vietnam, gave me my first camera when I was about nine or ten years old. It was a little uh, Instamatic, like one ten or something like that, and I burned through that first roll of film like that. Um, and I, you know, I had that camera for years, uh, but years later, I'm like, I'm now like uh, fourteen or so, and I'm at a, uh, I'm at a football game with my grandfather who's just this diehard uh Penn State fan he, you know he goes to a game and he wears like a Penn State hat and a shirt and shoes and socks and underwear it was just anything <laughs> Penn State you know he he would wear and I was never much of a football player I was always into soccer so I went to while we were there that weekend at Penn State I went to go see this uh, men's soccer game there my dad had his camera with him and I said hey dad you know can I can I use your camera to go down there and, and make some pictures He's like, oh, all right, don't shoot too many. So I, I, I held the camera up and I convinced him to let me on the field. It wasn't, in my mind, in my 14-year-old mind, I was being really sly and really tricky. But, you know, there's only 150 people in the stands, so it wasn't that big a, <laughs> wasn't that big a deal. But I felt like I was being slick. Um, so this was in November, and I came back up after the game. I said to my dad, I said, you know, you guys have been asking me what I want for Christmas. Is like, I want a camera for Christmas. I want one like yours. And he goes... This is far too complicated for the for you. You're never going to use a camera like this. What you want is you want a point and shoot. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want one just like this. So, uh, well, we'll see. Um, I end up getting a Pentax K1000 uh, 
for for Christmas that year. You know, I, I still have that camera. The camera's great. You know, you can take pictures with it one moment and go and drive nails with it the next minute. It's just an all manual, basic film camera. Um, so. You know, I got more and more into photography. The next year, I asked for another camera for Christmas and another lens. And that spring, I was at a friend's baseball game, and I was making pictures uh, at my friend's baseball game. And there was a photographer across the field from the local paper, the, from the Milford Daily News. And I'm like, huh, that guy's getting paid to take pictures. I should get paid to take pictures. And so I... You know, I went over and I talked to him and I said, oh, I see your work all the time. Isn't it? So you're such a great photographer. And he, he was actually very kind to me. Um, uh, you know, a few months after that, uh, I, I then I got in, I, I built my own dark room up in my house. I just got more and more into photography. I just thought it was really neat. You know, of course, I was a high school kid. I did like yearbook photography and all that stuff. Um, but I remember at some point I was like, I'm going to be a newspaper photographer. And my dad is a mechanical and nuclear engineer. He works on the uh, cooling systems of nuclear power plants. And my mom's a teacher. And I remember thinking, I'm like, they're never gonna, they're never gonna think being a newspaper photographer is a good career choice. And so I remember creeping down to my dad one night. He's in the study, and you know, he's reading, he's like reading the paper, paying bills or something. And I said, hey, so uh, I think I want to go to, I think I know what I want to do in college. He goes, oh yeah, what? And I said, so I want to be a newspaper photographer. And he goes, all right, sounds good. I was like, oh, well, that was that was easy, right? You know, so they they never really they never really fought me on it at all. Um, I um, I started working for the for the local paper. The first assignment I got for the local paper was to go and photograph a baseball game, and I didn't have my license yet, so I had to ask my mother if she could drive me to my first newspaper assignment. Uh, so that was that was funny. I got my license, and a few weeks later. Um, and, you know, I've always been kind of attracted to news. Um, I went to college at the Rochester Institute of Technology where I was a photojournalism major and an international relations minor. Um, RIT was the right school for me. Um, if I had gone to someplace like like Mizzou where I had to um, take a lot of prereqs before I got into journalism, I don't think I would have done very well. What was great for me about RIT was is that, you know, you were taking photo classes right away and I was engaged. Um, I was never a very good high school student. I got a couple A's, a handful of B's, a whole boatload of C's, some D's, and a couple F's. So I was I was never I was never kind of the same way. Yeah, average. Yeah, I was like I didn't care. You know, I was like ah, you know, you're not motivating me with this. And um, and then I went to college and I got you know, I, you know, like a three O, and I cared about what I was taking and I. I still struggled with the stuff I struggled with in high school, but I had these other things I was really interested in and really cared about and really pursued and tried much harder than I tried in high school because I cared about what I was doing. Yeah, it was uh, the same way. I went into the Navy, so I had some of my prereqs while I was there. And then when I went to Webster University, I could jump right into creative courses, start learning about the medium and all that. Right. And it was great because I think if I would have had to take all the basic right. courses, I, I don't know, I, I might not have got into it as much, but being able to jump right in, having a semester right. going in was fantastic. Yeah. And so our RIT was the right school for me. I got this great foundation of technical knowledge. Uh, there was a lot of other young guys there my age uh, who were who were really doing some great work, and we all kind of worked together. And, you know, we would – I remember we took a uh, 
rode in the back of a pickup truck and a covered pickup truck from Rochester down to Washington DC for Bill Clinton's inauguration um and that was in 2000 that was 92 um and it was freezing it was it was we, we in fact we lit a candle in the back of the thing there for warmth um and of course <laughs> the 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 pretty the the pretty girl got to ride up front with the guy whose truck it was like in the cab there and everything and the rest of us is all froze our butts off but we were happy because we were going to dc you have a camper so. shell or no or yeah it was a camper okay. shell it had a camper shell on no it, heat, but, it, but at least it, there was it, less it was, wind it was cold yeah we all sleeping bags <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, you know, I was always kind of chasing stuff and doing news. Um, when I graduated, I, uh, I was working in Boston as a freelance photographer and I was doing some arena lighting for Sports Illustrated where you'd crawl around up in the rafters of the arenas and hang strobe lights. Um, I got a contract position at the Providence Journal Bulletin. Those guys really taught me a lot there. Um, and then I, from Providence, I was there about three years. Um, I got a job down in Naples, Florida when I was there about three years. Um, then I came to St. Louis in 2000, and I've been at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for about since uh, since 2000, which is about, about 15 years now. So, Excellent. And an interesting backstory. So you've definitely always been passionate about this. Yeah, you know, I I love I love what I do. I, I love going out and making pictures. Um, you know, my, my even on my worst days are better than other people's best days. You know, it's like my, my job is to go out and make make pictures. And so on my worst day, I went out and I made so I made boring pictures. Well, well uh, tough life. <laughs> so yeah. Speaking of non boring pictures, one experience you had with Ferguson is you were uh, photographing inside of the Quick Trip when it was being looted. Tell right. us about that. I, I think that's one of the most intense photojournalism stories that I've ever heard. Yeah. So that was. This was Sunday, uh, August 10th, and um, I, I wasn't working at all this weekend. I, I had been, I was off on Saturday, August 9th when the shooting happened, and I saw it happen on Twitter, so I I, I called my boss and went up there to it, um, and uh, later, I, when I was wrapping things up there on August 9th, at the end of that night, there had been some really intense pictures be, to be made there, and I said, Hey, just so you know, it sounds like they're going to have a, a, a memorial service out here tomorrow night at about uh, sunset. We should probably get someone out here to cover that. And he said, I'm not, I'm off. So you're going to have to have one of the Sunday people cover it. But I was super interested. I was super interested in the story now. And so I'm sitting at home and I'm, I'm like watching on Twitter just, okay, well, they've had, they've had the memorial service and people kind of sticking around. And then the police showed up and, People at the memorial service, uh, members of the community started, started squaring off with the police, and you could, and I could see on Twitter that it was just starting to, you know, go south. You know, it wasn't going in a good direction. Um, Rachel uh, Rachel Lippman from NPR, I was reading some of her tweets, and she said people are throwing rocks at police. Uh, um, there was a report; it turned out to be false of. of Tear, of tear gas being used and so I went upstairs to my wife I said I, I gotta go in I, I gotta go in again this was the second night now in a row I've done this to her on my day off and she's a former AP reporter so she's she's fairly understanding of this but um, you know she she handled she was like okay you know I'll, I'll see you later and as I was leaving as I was leaving my house I, I kind of I just had a feeling that I was going to need some more protective equipment than what I traditionally carried with me. And uh, at the Post-Dispatch, we have a closet. Um, it's traditionally been called the war closet. 
uh, in the war closet, we keep uh, bulletproof vests and gas masks and ballistic helmets. And we call it the war closet because this was usually the closet you went to when you're going to Iraq or Afghanistan on an embed and you were going to need bulletproof vests and stuff. And, you know, we just we just always had that stuff locked up. You don't really need you, previously you never really needed that to cover stuff in St. Louis. So I went in there and I grabbed um, three sets of body armor and three helmets and three gas masks. And I picked up some long lenses because I thought I was going to be photographing this from a distance and stuff. I didn't know what to expect. So I just grabbed a lot of stuff because I knew that not only I was going, but some Robert Cohen and J.B. Forbes. And I was bringing some more equipment for everyone else. So as I'm, so as I'm headed up there, I am uh, I, I'm being a bad being a bad citizen, I'm looking at Twitter as I'm driving, and I'm in my, some of the editors are texting me, and they text me and they say, "Hey, it looks like, it looks like the Quick Trip's being looted." Uh, Beth O'Malley, who's our online social media editor, she goes, "It looks like the Quick Trip's being looted. You should go there." And I'm like, "Oh, thanks." <laughs> Uh, and I was talking to JBR photographer who was up there and they, he had actually been run off and people were threatening him and stuff. So as you're, as I'm driving, uh, as I'm driving up there, there are all these police cars just flying past me on highway 70, just, and they're, they're going at it like, you know, a hundred plus miles an hour, just going there. And as they get closer to Ferguson off of Lucas and hunt, like the traffic's all backed up and you can see all these lights and sirens and I can see where the quick trip is, but I don't see any quick way to get there. So I go and I sort of weave my way through all these back neighborhoods and I ended up about three blocks from the quick trip and I get out and I'm like, this is, this is as close as I'm going to get in my car. This is good enough. And I get out of my car and I can't reach Robert. I can't reach JB. Um, I, I'm like, well, this is just going to have to be it. And so I get out and I, I, I pop my trunk and I put on a bulletproof vest and a ballistic helmet and strap a gas mask to my leg and put two cameras on my shoulders and throw throw my computer bag over my over my back and I start walking down the side street but it's about three blocks away up, up to Quick Trip and I walked one block and I was like oh, I look like an asshole like who, who wears this in St. Louis like I, and, and I take off I take off the ballistic helmet and I kind of just strap it to my leg and I walk up another block and I, now like sort of the confusion and the chaos that's taking place up there is starting to come into focus better for me and I'm like Oh, I'm gonna put my helmet back on, and so I, I put the helmet back on and strapped it back on my chin. And as I walked up and around, I, I came up on the side of Quick Trip out of North Windsor Estates, and I kind of walked out and around to the front to where this car wash was. And I'm, you know, about a, you know, about probably about like a, a hundred yard circle. I may just make a hundred yard circle around the front of the Quick Trip, and I get out to the front of the um, to the front of the to the front of quick trip across the street. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, boy, these pictures are okay, but you know, you, you need to get closer. You need to, you need to man up here. You need, you need to go over there. And so if you were staying next to me, you would have thought I was a crazy person. Cause I was, I was literally talking out loud to myself as I'm looking at the pictures on the back of my camera. And no one had really had any negative interactions with me at this point. You know, everyone sort of like avoided me. Um, so I, I said, okay, so let's walk up. So I walked up and I stood outside the quick trip um, and I started making some pictures outside the quick trip. And I had this really interesting conversation with this guy um, outside the quick trip. And I'm like, yeah, it's a crazy scene, huh? And like people are like jumping through these broken windows with, uh, uh, with bottles of wine in their hands and stuff. And people are like running out the door with, with, uh, with stuff they've looted from inside this quick trip. Now I, I should say that, 
I'm telling the the time I'm taking to tell the story is longer than the, the entire time that this took place. I was outside the quick trip for just over two minutes. And I turned to this guy who I had just met outside there. He's staying outside the quick trip, filming it on his iPad. Um, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to, next time someone goes in the quick trip, I'm going to follow him in there and make some pictures of this of whoever goes in there. He goes, all right, yeah. And so someone goes in the quick trip and I go in the quick trip and I start making a few pictures in the quick trip. And this guy comes out and he's got some beer and some other stuff and he's wearing a Trayvon Martin shirt. And then I go around the corner and there's this like 16 year old kid and he's like, he's stealing Pepsi, uh, like two liter bottles of Pepsi. And I, cause I guess when you're 16 that, you know, you steal Pepsi. Also everything, a lot of other things in the story had already been stolen and looted at this time. So, but, um, and as I'm making this picture of this kid stealing the Pepsi, I, I look behind, or I didn't look, I, I hear behind me, this big dude comes up behind me and he goes, Hey, what are you doing? And, and this guy is much larger than me. He, this guy is potentially like a, a linebacker, a lineman for the NFL, uh, for an NFL team. And this guy's huge. Um, and he, he's got a white shirt on. He lifts his white shirt and he shows me this handgun tucked into his waistband. And he kind of looks at me and he leans in. And I'm like, um, I'm making pictures for the post-dispatch. And he looks at me some more and I say, your face is covered. No one will know who you are. You'll be fine. He goes, okay. And he goes back to looting the store and I'm like, oh my God. Like, I, I just, I, I can't, can't believe that this just happened. Um, he goes over and he starts, um, he goes behind the quick trip counter and he starts, uh, he picks up some uh, nine hour, some lemon flavored nine hour energy. And he starts that that's what he's going to loot from the store. And um, I, I for some reason, for some reason, I decide I'm going to make this guy's picture now after he's threatened me with the gun. Um, and the picture I actually made of him there was it was actually one we used in the Pulitzer entry. And he's looking right at me, and you can see the gun in his waistband. And I make this picture of him, and then I I run the hell out the door. <laughs> I was inside the quick trip for less than two minutes. I was inside there for like a minute and 48 or something like that. And I can tell this by the timestamps on my pictures. Um, I was so nervous and so, you know, scared when I was in there uh, that, you know, shooting an iPhone video is a pretty basic step. You know, my nine-year-old can do it. No problem. I was unsuccessful in my attempts to shoot iPhone video inside the Quick Trip store. I was shaking so much and sweating so much that when I thought I, I like I just like it's a pretty simple thing to shoot iPhone video and I couldn't get the damn iPhone you know to shoot video. And um in fact at one point you know I do have some video from inside the Quick Trip, but it's actually me I'm hitting the button where I think I'm stopping the iPhone video and it's clearly what's happening is it's starting the video so it goes dink and you can see it with me putting the video into my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that is my great iPhone video from the, from the quick trip is, you know, is up my pocket. Now we were able to use the audio from that. Um, the video is useless, but we were able to use some of the audio from that. Um, but I, after I make this picture of the guy at the register who's threatened me with the gun, I like run out across the street to, uh, to transmit these photos and because now it's getting on deadline, it's, it's after ten o'clock. I know we're on deadline. I, I got these pictures. I got to get them back. And I I popped up my computer. Um, I went back behind this trash this trash thing with these slats in it. So I I I felt secure there enough to open up my computer so I could open up. Um, the computer's gonna highlight me. You know, it's it's pitch dark out there, but I and I don't want to just open it up and be spotlighted. 
but I need to get these pictures out. And so I, I go behind this trash thing where I can look out and keep things in front of me and send these pictures. I can't, my adrenaline is flowing so much. I'm so jacked up on it that I can't type the captions on it and stuff. I can bear, like I can, I can edit, but I'm so sort of like looking out there and so alert that I can't really type and sweats dripping off my forehead down onto the keyboard. And, um, so I'm, I, I get back, I just pick 10 pictures and I send, I send them back to my boss and these pictures start flowing into the system. And, uh, my boss's, my boss's, uh, my boss, Lyndon Steele's, uh, boss, uh, the city editor, Adam Goodman comes over to Lyndon and says, Hey, tell everyone out there not to take any stupid risks. And as he's saying that Lyndon's looking at the pictures of the guy with the gun come into the system and Lyndon looks at him and goes too late and shows him the <laughs> shows him that picture. So, um, yeah, that, that was, that was a pretty crazy night. Uh, um, you know, I, not my best personal safety decision I've ever made. Um, I've had some hostile environment training. I, I, I'd gone on to, I'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan on stories with the post dispatch. So I had some hostile environment training. I don't know what sort of training exactly prepares you for that. Um, if I had known I was going to be threatened with a gun in there, would I have gone in? No, probably not. Uh, later, uh, in December of that, that year, a few months later, uh, there was another, uh, fatal police officer involved shooting in Berkeley. And there was another quick trip, which was being looted and, and someone was trying to set on fire out there. And I, uh, I walked across the street with this, with this protester who I'd built a relationship with over the months. I said, come on, I want to go over here and look at this quick trip. And I stood outside the quick trip and I looked, I was like, nah, I'm not going in there. <laughs> and I walked back across the street. I just, I was like, ah, I kind of learned my lesson about going in the quick trips. I wasn't going to push my luck. So, um, you know, I, the decisions I make, I'm, it's hard for me to, I, I, they're not all necessarily the best planned out. Um, so. So you've seen just a lot of crazy things over the years with, in this field, all the murders that we've talked about being in the quick trip. How do you separate things emotionally? How do you keep yourself balanced where you're, you don't, I mean, I could see myself really just, just getting down with seeing this all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, people have asked me, they're like, you know, do you have PTSD from covering this? And I'm like, uh, I've covered stories about PTSD. I've sat in on psychologists talking with people with PTSD. I, I'm aware of what the issues are. Um, you know, there, there are, there are things that do, you know, stress me out. Um, I, um, I was editing, uh, we're, we're getting ready for the year anniversary of Ferguson and I was actually editing through the pictures from inside the quick trip. Um, and we we're sitting in the office of the paper and you know, it's I'm sitting in a nice 68 degree air conditioned office and you know, no real stress going on in my life, but I'm looking at these pictures and I realize that my breathing and my heart rate are, are jacked. And the only thing that was going on is I was looking at these pictures from, from inside the quick trip. And I sort of, I put my fingers on my neck and I was like, oh yeah. And I, I kind of, I laughed about it. I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of funny. I guess that's, I guess that's a little, <laughs> little bit of PTSD. And I went out and I told my boss, I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of funny, you know, 
I was looking at these pictures and I realized that, you know, my, my heart rate's jacked and I'm breathing hard. And he, he kind of looks at me and he goes, you all right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. You know? So I am aware enough. I'm in touch with myself and aware, aware of that. This is a potential problem. If I think that I'm going to, if I think I'm having a problem, you know, I'll talk with someone. I was alert enough to tell, you know, my boss about it, to talk with my wife about it. It's not something that I internalize and keep in. Um, so, you know, I, I've talked to other people and they've said that it's been like years, years later. I was a, f a photographer I was talking to who used to work for the Miami Herald and she, she talked to me after a presentation I gave one day and she goes, she goes, you know, just be ready for it. You know, um, I was covering, uh, some stuff down in, uh, uh, Haiti and I, you know, it was some, it was some fairly violent things. And then I was covering, a, um, a riot in Miami. She goes and I had to stop and go sit down, um, you know, to, to, to gather myself. You know, she was, I, I just, I, it came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. So I don't think that's going to happen to me. Um, I, I'm, you know, I, I tend to talk a lot. Uh, Robert Cohen and I, uh, we were talking uh, just the other day. It's like, you know, you know, you'll be out, you know, when, anytime you're in Ferguson, you're sort of, you know, your, 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 your spidey senses are up, you know, and you're alert. And uh, so, you know, sometimes you have someone runs over a, a, a water bottle that cracks, you know, you sort of stiffen up a little bit. And, but I, I think that that's just being alert and aware and, and, and wanting to make sure you're safe around those, uh, you know, your, your personal safety is in good shape. I'd be more worried if that didn't bother me, if that would tell me that my senses aren't working and, you know, and that, you know. I think it's good to have a good, healthy flight or flight, uh, fight or flight response, and um, you know to let that you know be in touch with what that flight response is and listen to it at times. Because um, if I ever feel uncomfortable, there's been a couple of times where I called my boss and I'm like, "Nope, I'm I've backed way off, and I'm observing this from a distance. I'm not comfortable with this." Um, I uh, th this was after I was covering a a protest in Ferguson outside of uh, Reds. And uh, this was the night that the Baltimore riots were really kicking off. And there was a sympathy protest uh, taking place in Ferguson for, for the Baltimore riots. And the cops had showed up uh, down there and they, they started throwing rocks at them and stuff. And I kind of went over and I stood by a bunch of these like senior citizen ladies who were just kind of out looking at this protest. And I figured that I was gonna be, these senior citizen ladies weren't going to jump me from behind. But but that's where I'm talking about being situationally aware where it's like, you know, these ladies were going to protect me and no one was going to throw anything at these ladies. And um, <laughs> they need human shields. Were, were, well, they weren't human shields because I was staying in front of them. You were the but, human shield right, for them. Right. But it was like <laughs> this was a safe area yeah. to be. Um and I could still cover the scene from there. You know, this this was sort of like because you had the police yeah. and you had the protesters, and this was sort of like the non-combatant area mm -hmm. over there. And um, so I was watching it from over there, and then shooting this this, this shooting erupted. And uh, at first, I thought it was uh, firecrackers, and and you know, no, because the the cadence was wrong on it. And what it was is that it was a the cadence was wrong because it was an exchange of gunfire, and so this guy, um, the cops go off chasing one of the shooters, and I'm sort of following along, kind of behind them, and, and this guy uh, is hopping up along the this fence line. And he goes down, and he falls down behind this fence line, 
And I, I walk over to him. I'm like, are, are, you okay? are you okay? And it's like me and like one other person. He goes, no, I've, I've been shot. And I'm looking at him. Oh, I'm God. just like, oh, shit. I'm like, well, I'm like, don't stay here behind this fence line. Like, you you could bleed out. You need to be someplace where someone can get you some aid here or something like that. And so we, we picked him up. And this other guy came over. And he, we threw him. We, we took his arms over our shoulders. And we carried him into this um carried him into this Chinese food restaurant. And then I was like, all right, well, he's in a safe space now. I said, um, photojournalist again. And I started taking his picture. And he really pissed I was making his picture. But um, <laughs> I, I forgot, I'm like, dude, I carried you all the way over. I, I got I to gotta make this picture now. Um, but he like bled all over my pants and stuff. And uh, But later that night, I was like, I was just in no mood to be around any of the unrest. And I just pulled back. Um, and my boss was like, that's fine. My boss will never, I have confidence that my boss will never yell at me for pulling back if I don't feel safe. So, well, I didn't feel safe. So I, I backed off. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, when we would go to Iraq and Afghanistan, the conversations our editors would always have with us, they say, there's not a picture you could make out there that would be worth getting shot for or dying for. And I, think that that still applies in Ferguson there's nothing you know there's not there's not a picture I could make that would be worth getting hit for or you know so uh my you know I've got a nine-year-old daughter and a wife at home and my wife would kick my ass if I got shot so uh, more afraid of her what would happen to me than something else but um yeah you know it's most important to go home and you know tell you know tell the story so well, thank you for joining me today and, and telling the story. It's uh, It's been amazing, fair and balanced. I think that's one of the themes we hit upon, and it's great work that you're doing. Where can, uh, where can the audience follow you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is uh, PDPJ. Um, it stands for Post-Dispatch Photojournalist. Um, and I have a, there's a, there are a lot of pictures on stltoday.com and on my personal website, uh, davidcarsonphotos.com. There's a bunch of stuff. Um, at some point, we are going to have a film. We're working on a film about Ferguson um, that you talked about with the film festival. It's continued to, even since you saw that one there, it's continuing to evolve. So it's something we're continuing to work on. So at some point, we're hoping to put post that someplace as well. Great. Well, let me know, and I'll, I'll pass that along to the listeners. And uh, everyone, I encourage you to check out some of David's photos. It's amazing work. and. He's gone through a lot to get those photos for you. So thanks again, David. Appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.